This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. to think about who we are as moral selves. Who are these folks before they ever join the military? Because this moral orienting system is something that gets put together throughout your life. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Zachary Moon. He's Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Chicago Theological Seminary. He's also the author of the books Coming Home, Ministry That Matters with Veterans and Military Families, and a recent book that has just come out called Warriors Between Worlds, Moral Injury and Identities in Crisis. Longtime listeners will remember that we talked about moral injury once before, back in 2015, when I had as our guest Rita Nakashima Brock, one of the founders founders of the conversation about moral injury. And and Dr. Moon's intention here is to take that conversation farther. So I commend that first conversation to you, but I think that you'll also get a lot out of this one. Dr. Zachary Moon, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me, David. So when we are talking about this concept of moral injury, this was a mistake that I made with Dr. Rita Nakashima Brock early in my conversation. I kept thinking that it was a type of of injury that was similar to what we might call post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. She very quickly informed me that I was barking up the wrong tree with that. And so just as a refresher, when we're talking about moral injury in broad strokes, what are we referring to, Dr. Moon? Well, it's certainly easy uh, to get that confused. And I think it can get, get confused both as one is experiencing a moral injury and also as one as being one who would seek to respond or provide care to one who is suffering uh, with moral injury. And part of the reason why it can be confusing is the, the kind of symptoms that would be able to be seen by someone suffering with moral injury might in fact look very much like post-traumatic stress disorder. And certainly what we've seen in this last more than 15 years now, uh, almost 20 years uh, of these most recent military mobilizations and, and, and deployments abroad, uh, this generation of warfighters, uh, many of of them have come to be diagnosed and cared for with a PTSD diagnosis. But what we begin to understand as we hear these stories is that actually the underlying experiences that have generated this traumatic stress and, and this trauma in their lives is in fact not what would what we would know to diagnostically conform to the standard of PTSD, but instead is something different than that. So what it might look like might look like PTSD. And in fact, it might even 
come to be diagnosed by the VA or, or others as PTSD, but the underlying story uh, is in fact quite different. When we think about what it is to provide support and care uh, for someone who's experienced something like this, understanding the story that generates this traumatic experience is crucial, which is one of the reasons why we need to have the conversation about moral injury. Well, let me, let me try this on for size and see if I've got it. So when we're talking about moral injury, we're talking about almost a kind of misalignment of worlds. In our everyday world, we know that you're not supposed to take out a gun and shoot someone. But when you're on the battlefield, you have almost been trained that that should be your first operating response in several situations. And so we have a misalignment of the expectations of the everyday civilian world and the expectations of the military world. That can cause some confusion when a person is, and you use such a good image, you, you talk about boot camp as a way of training someone into this military mindset, but we don't ever have shoe camp to get someone out of the military mindset. So it's a misalignment of of worldviews in some senses. First of all, do I have that in any way correct, or would you correct that? No, that's certainly how I would characterize it in the book, although I think it's important to at least bring into this conversation that there is no consensus definition. At this time, this is still very much an emerging uh, kind of, the, the, the definitional language of this concept is, is still very much in the process of kind of growing to become what it is. It's an idea that really comes as almost as a kind of differentiating diagnosis out of a clinical medical model, right? So a clinical psychologist within the VA hospital setting, talking with veterans, recognizing, oh, wait, this isn't PTSD. This isn't the thing that we've heard so many times. We're we're hearing something, again, not just occasionally, but with some regularity. And we, we need to begin to better define and clarify what it is that this is. And so the the term moral injury then uh, really emerges as a way to sort of say, not PTSD, this other kind of trauma that's being experienced. Now, you won't find moral injury in in the diagnostic manual at at, at this point. Uh, So it's not a diagnosis as such in that kind of way. So at this point, it's really helping to inform the care um, that is being offered to veterans and others but not as a diagnosis per se, as as a way of kind of making sense differently. Now, in terms of thinking about where moral injury comes from, you have, again, some fluidity here, some something that hasn't totally settled when it comes to what this definition is. Now, there are some folks who are going to point in the direction of saying, let's track a person's actions or inactions that then lead to a sense of kind of moral conflict. And again, not not in an intellectual sense, but in an overwhelming, traumatizing kind of sense. That this isn't a sort of, I wondered if I should have done something different in a small kind of way, but in a big, overwhelming, I can't get out of bed. I I am so overwhelmed in this. My normal functioning uh, is not able to, in fact, kind of act as it usually does, right? So when we talk about trauma, we're not talking about a small thing. We're talking about something that is really overwhelmed, uh, normal functioning in that kind of way. There are other folks who would say, oh, we also want to think about the action and inaction of others. So in a military context, this might be directed at a commanding officer who puts uh, service members into a certain kind of situation that then generated this kind of moral uh, dilemma, this kind of moral breach that takes place. Uh, But rather than an evaluation of something that I did or didn't do, my evaluation is what somebody else who was responsible was morally 
uh, culpable did or didn't do. So the focus has been there. And again, this is in a way mapping in the same kind of way that we've mapped with PTSD. We've looked at specific acute events. And we've said, look, trauma happens in the aftermath of these, right? So when we're talking about moral injury, we might be talking about a situation that leads to the death of someone who wasn't supposed to die, a a non-combatant, a civilian, a child, a woman. And maybe it wasn't clear in the moment who that person was, but it comes to be revealed. And that leads to a moral conflict at that kind of level. Now, one of the things that I really want to lean into in in the book that I've written here is to say we, we need to look beyond just these singular acute traumatic events. We need to think in in really substantive and sincere ways about these big transitions that happen. And that's what I hear you speaking to is the military knows full well how much it takes for a civilian teenager to to leave their civilian context. What would they need to prepare themselves to be able to function effectively in a military context? That's going to be boot camp, right? Yeah. And and in your book, you talk about the things that happen to that teenager. So their heads are shaved so that their identity in hairstyle is removed. They are broken down in terms of their their kind of psychology so that they become malleable to being shaped towards being a warrior where maybe they, they might have been a gentle person in civilian life. And so there are steps and transitions that are calculated to make a person capable of doing these sorts of things. First of all, is that a correct characterization of what the military is doing? I think so, although it's uh, we, we, have to, we have to sort of identify two things happening simultaneously that are, in fact, are so intricately linked to each other that we can't talk about one without talking about the other. Something is being taken away. A certain kind of distancing is happening between a recruit and their pre-existing civilian relationship, civilian identity. But something else is happening that's additive, right? That, that when you uh, get that close shaved haircut, you're losing something, but you're also gaining something. And 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 what's what's being constructed there is a very deep sense of belonging to an us. You call it warrior culture yes. in the book. And yes. so it it's an entire mindset. Now, one of the things that jumped out to me was how much this sounded like the stories that I've heard of someone who's entered a cult, of someone who's going into a, a religious landscape where they are they're taught to cut off their former relationships. They're taught to bond with the people that are immediately around them. It's a very selfless kind of model of saying you need to exist for the others. In that sense, I, I heard a lot of affinities towards kind of joining a cult in the same way that one joins the military. Now, first of all, am I hearing that incorrectly or am I onto something here? Well, I think you can certainly see that, the the elements of sacrifice, the elements of belonging, uh, what compels people to join, to be a part of a group. I think all of those can be mapped accurately in that way. I think one of the things that I would certainly want to parse here, though, is I think most of the kind of dominant thinking about cults is this is kind of a, a strange you know, something that happens, you know, kind of below the surface kind of thing. And in that way, the military is not that at all, right? The the military has significant uh, power in terms of the the culture and, and the identity, the mythology of, of how we understand ourselves as Americans in a much more kind of dominating and, and normative kind of way than any cult that you could point to, right? Uh, we can look at that and we say, oh, that's a small group. You know, those folks are different than us. 
there's a way in which this military culture that we're, that we're talking about here has substantial impact in influencing what American society looks like and what American identity looks like. We'll pick that up in the next segment. But for right now, let me just say you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're talking today with Zachary Moon, Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Chicago Theological Seminary. We're discussing his recent book, Warriors Between Worlds, Moral Injury and Identities in Crisis. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Dr. Zachary Moon about his recent book, Warriors Between Worlds, Moral Injury and Identities in Crisis. So before the break, we were talking about warrior culture, and you you said that a warrior culture is different in many ways from what I was considering to be kind of like a, a religious cult in the sense of and one of the things that you were saying about is, is how central and important the military is to American culture and American consciousness. Tell me a little bit more about that. What, in what ways are we identifying militarism with Americanism in what you just said? Well, that is a, that's a big conversation and a big question, David. I think one of the things that I want us to appreciate and be aware of in greater ways from an American civilian perspective is uh, one, of, one of the breaches that I think is, is happening even more so in this generation of war fighting is that because there are so few who are serving in the military in this generation, there, there's a way in which the military both has kind of supreme cultural capital in an American context, and yet also is something that is actually only being participated in by really a, a smaller number of American civilians than we ever had before. So we're in a war that has gone on for longer than any other war uh, that we can point to in American history, and yet the number of American civilians who have put on that military military uniform and uh, served our nation in this kind of way. We've never had so few to serve in this kind of time. So when we think about what, you know, what is it that would compel somebody to join the military and also what might they be sorting through when they come home, I think it's important to understand um, some of these complexities, the relationship between civilian and military. I've often, um, whether I've been talking to folks in religious communities or in educational communities, there's often, I think, a reticence for civilians to reach out and be in conversation with folks in the military. This adage around veterans would really rather talk to other veterans, right? This is one of the, the ways in which this breach kind of plays itself out in really what ends up being a very harmful way. Because what happens, again, for this generation of warfighter is I might be able to go to my job, go to my university, visit with my family, spend time in my neighborhood, and not see any anyone else who has served in uniform, right? Now, that wouldn't have been true for World War II, wouldn't have been true probably 
in the Vietnam War generation. So the kind of social relational isolation that emerges if I have internalized, I'm a vet, I need to talk to another vet, and maybe I try to go down to the VA and I try to talk to one of these older veterans, but their experience and my experience uh, aren't really jiving with each other, and I, and I can't find somebody to talk to. So one of the things that I, I really want to emphasize when I speak to civilians is saying, if you can be in a trustworthy, authentic relationship with someone who has served in the military, that has immense power because one of the things that it does is it interrupts the power of the narrative that says, I'm a veteran, I can only talk to another veteran because, David, I found a way to talk to you and I found a way in which you hung in there with me when maybe I put you through some tests, maybe I used some salty language, maybe I told you a story, you know, that that I, I knew would make you uncomfortable and I could see your discomfort, but I could also see your resolve in being in relationship with me. And as I began to trust you as a civilian, even across this kind of chasm of, of our of our lived experiences, now I realize there are other folks that also might be trustworthy. And what that does is it just takes the roof off of, of what my social, emotional, relational world might really get to be. If I can only be a vet talking to another vet, uh, I might find myself very isolated, very alienated from those in community. And it's, in fact, that kind of isolation that often leads to some of uh, the most death-dealing kinds of results, whether that's veteran suicide, other self-harming behavior, parasuicidal behavior. These kinds of things come from a place often of um, a kind of overestimation of one's own self-reliance in these situations. We need each other uh, to be able to do this. Now, when we are talking about moral injury, We've started out the conversation differentiating it from post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic stress disorder in its original sort of clinical understanding started with a bad event, like say you're held up at gunpoint or you're in a car crash, and then in the wake of that traumatic event, you have formations of emotions that it's too big to process. In recent years, there's been a, an expansion of that diagnosis to not just a single traumatic event, but what some people are calling complex post-traumatic stress disorder, where there's a web of traumas that then are too big to deal with. In a similar fashion, I feel like what's happening with moral injury in the conversation over the past few years is it started with an idea of kind of one singular breach in one's moral universe. But what I really appreciate about your book, Warriors Between Worlds, is I feel like in the same way that the, the language around post-traumatic stress has become more complex, you've tried to bring complexity to the idea of moral injury, and you do that with a model that you call moral orienting systems. And so I'd like to take a few moments for our listeners to sort of understand what you mean when you're talking about a moral orienting system and how that plays into our emerging understanding of moral injury. Yeah. So, David, you're, you're right. Part of the work of this book is trying to bring that kind of nuance and complexity to this, believing adamantly that our, our response, our care, our support, our accompaniment will all be better for understanding these nuances and complexities, right? So, uh, as someone who served as a chaplain in the military, as someone who serves uh, in an educational role, I, you know, I'm thinking about how does this uh, kind of research and theoretical work, how does it help to strengthen us to have more effective responses to folks? So what I do in this book is really try to delve into the question, what do we mean when we say moral? 
What is it that we think is being injured? What do we think is being traumatized? And as we have first started working with this concept and trying to figure out, again, how can it help us to be effective in our responses, that there certainly hasn't been clarity about that. And it's almost with this kind of suggestion of, well, an injury. I mean, that sounds like you broke your arm, right? Well, boy, our, our sense of moral identity is so much more complicated and layered than an injury like a broken arm would be. So we've got we've to have the kind of apparatus, the kind of conceptual framework here to really think through that kind of complexity. So moral orienting systems is the concept that I try to use, not with a sense that this is the greatest concept uh, that ever could have been come up, but really as a call to other scholars, other practitioners, let's have this conversation. What do we mean when we say moral? Because if we think about that in a flat or simplistic kind of way, there's just all kinds of problems that can emerge there, right? If I'm thinking, oh, you're moral like I'm moral. So if I'm your chaplain and you're telling me about your moral stress and I'm imposing my sense of moral identity on you, we can begin to understand how quickly we could get derailed in providing effective care if we think too simplistically about what we mean uh, when we say moral. So part of what the book really is doing in the way that it's formatted is actually wanting to de-emphasize these acute traumatic responses, knowing that that's where really all of the attention has been paid up until this point. I really want us to think about who we are as moral selves uh, before military service. So rather, if we're going to really understand the, the moral injuries that can take place within a military context, who are these folks before they ever join the military? Because this moral orienting system is something that gets put together throughout your life and it changes and it adapts. And as we talked about in the first segment here, David, we, we are subject to big transitions and, and how we behave as moral selves in one space is not necessarily how we need to behave in, in other uh, kinds of spaces. So how can we understand the complexity of that? How can we think about how basic training or boot camp uh, really is a very intense curriculum of helping to re-inscribe that moral orienting system so that a civilian not is not, not only indoctrinated into a warrior culture, but in fact can actually do their job in a very different moral world than what they're familiar with. And then what I really want to encourage us all to think about is if we can appreciate how transformative basic training and boot camp can be to the, the kind of moral selfhood of who who our military is recruiting and, and who our military service members are, would we think differently about what it means to come home, to make that transition home, in fact needs a particular kind of support for those of us who are taking the uniform off to then be able to say, well, there are parts of me that were very engaged and very empowered, um, things that were very meaningful to me about my military service. And I'm also looking at my future. I'm thinking about how can I live a meaningful good life back in this civilian world that's really quite different than the military world that I'm transitioning out of. What kind of support, what kind of relationships, uh, what kind of learning and growing would I need to do to be able to make that kind of transition well? Now, one of the difficulties, of course, is that the military culture that we're talking about, the warrior culture, almost pushes back against the idea of needing help. It almost pushes back in many ways against the idea of, of going to another for assistance or support. The whole notion is to create a person who is ruggedly self-reliant. And so how does your work help to give those that are trying to make this transition back a new vocabulary to try and, and 
and do that outreach. Yeah, David, it's a it's a great point. And I again, I've heard that same kind of phrasing again and again, and I, and not enough this sort of compliment, this kind of sister to, to the idea that you're, because you're very, you're, you're right, there's, there is a kind of rugged self-reliance that's very much a part of our military's culture. But there's also another thing that goes with it, and that is you ought to never be alone, right? And from the very first moment you begin your basic training or your boot camp, one of the things that was very noticeable to me about my own training when I went through is, my goodness, I, I haven't been alone since I got here, right? I don't, go to the shower by myself. I don't uh, have a room to myself. I don't eat by myself. My entire world, my entire sense of who I am is now deeply linked to these others, right? This is a crucial point for us too, when we really want to think about how are we interrogating what's happened in this identity formation. Yes, there's a kind of rugged sense of, you know, I've got to be able to do this, but there's also a very deep, deep sense of I need others to be able to survive. And I think one of the real devastating realizations when folks get back to us, American civilian context is, uh, other folks are so individualistic within in this American context, whether they're in church or any other place, that folks don't actually rely on each other. They don't have a sense of deep belonging, a sense of my survival is wrapped up in your survival. And that in and of itself can feel like a kind of moral betrayal. You say you care about me, but you're not showing up for me in the way that the folks in uniform showed up for me. So can I trust you? Can I trust that when I'm in really in a bad situation, a a life-threatening kind of situation, I'd be able to trust you to help bring me back to life? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Zachary Moon. He's an assistant professor of practical theology at Chicago Theological Seminary. We're talking about his recent book, Warriors Between Worlds, Moral Injury, and Identities in Crisis. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Dr. Zachary Moon. He's Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Chicago Theological Seminary. We're discussing his recent book, Warriors Between Worlds, Moral Injury and Identities in Crisis. Well, Dr. Moon, you've talked about it a couple of times in our conversation so far, but I want to go back now for our listeners and kind of really flesh it out. You've mentioned that you yourself have been through basic training. You yourself have gone into military service, but let's, let's go back before that. So how did you grow up? Did you grow up in a, in a family of faith, and what was that family of faith? Yeah, I was um, raised in Berkeley, California, a, a town and a community very much informed uh, by a very different kind of perspective on military service. Uh, the Berkeley that I knew of my upbringing was deeply informed by the anti-war movement of the Vietnam War generation. Um, and that was my family. That was also very influential in my faith community, the religious society of friends, uh, often uh, called Quakers. So a very liberal community, a very anti-war community, a community that understood its religious tradition uh, as being deeply committed to pacifism. This was my first language, uh, both of faith and and of identity. And so uh, the way in which life can sometimes be uh, an unexpected uh, kind of adventure, I was in my 20s, I was doing work uh, with religious communities who were, again, deeply committed uh, to doing transformative work 
uh, in their neighborhoods and in their communities. And in the, in the midst of doing that work, the piece that kept coming to me was this uh, refrain, this invitation, this demand that's found again and again in the Christian Gospels around being very thoughtful about the cost of who you love, who you're in relationship with, and the ease with which sometimes Christian communities, in this case, will speak of loving your neighbor or loving your enemy. And as a Quaker, I had just for so long sort of thought, well, I don't have any enemies because I'm such a nice person. And after all, I care about everybody. And then I kind of had this moment where I realized, well, the folks who I really know the least, the, the the people who seem strangest to me are people who would have said, yes, I'll go serve in our nation's military. That seemed like a, a kind of divergence to what I thought of as being uh, how a person should live, right? As a pacifist, I thought what it meant to be a pacifist and be a person of faith were so intricately tied to each other that to join the military was such a kind of significant divergence to that. So when I was a seminary student, I was really wrestling with that, was really having a sense of what's going on here. The other biblical story that was so challenging for me is in the 10th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. It's this very evocative, beautiful story where Peter and Cornelius are brought together and Cornelius is identified as being someone who's a part of the military uh, and certainly would have been at odds with who Peter's community was, who Peter was, and who his people were uh, at this point. And in this kind of just beautiful uh, story, Peter says to his friends, I'm feeling hungry. I'm feeling like I need something that I don't have, right? And hunger is the kind of metaphor that's being used there. And he kind of goes off by himself and he falls into this trance. And and the vision, and and many of you may know the story uh, well, is this kind of divine picnic blanket descends from the heavens and opens up. But to Peter's surprise and, and really dismay, uh, it's all the wrong kind of food, right? So something is being provided and yet it's the wrong thing. And so Peter thinks that this is a kind of a test. That's how he responds. He says, oh, no, no, no. I'm a good person of faith. I know I'm not supposed to eat these things. And the the, the holy response to Peter is the thing that just broke my heart open and, and even to this day continues to inform uh, my sense of ministry uh, about how to still be rooted in in a pacifist tradition and yet understand what it means to be in relationship with the military in a different way. The Holy speaks back in response to Peter's denial to say, do not call unclean, do not call profane what I can make clean. And realizing both for Peter and also for myself in my own ways, I had come to think of the military as being a thing that makes profane in the world. It is an unclean thing. As a Quaker, I wouldn't have used that language, and yet I realized that was very much the way that I thought about it. Um, And could I leave space in my thinking, in my believing, in in my life of faith uh, for God to make clean things that I thought had been unclean. Uh, And that I realized again that for me, who, who that was, what that was, was military service. It was folks in the military. So as a seminary student, uh, I started going down to the VA hospital, uh, looking for opportunities uh, to try to reach out and be in relationship with these folks who I would have thought to have been strange, if not uh, sort of unclean in these sort of religious or moral terms. And what surprised me again and again and again, every time I sought those relationships was God was doing something in those relationships that intellectually I could not comprehend. I, I couldn't make sense how a Quaker kid 
kid from Berkeley, California, was having an opportunity to, to sit along the bedside of someone who saw the world differently, knew God differently, uh, voted differently, um, understood themselves so differently than I did. And yet God was bringing us together. God was calling Cornelius and Peter. God was calling this veteran and this this Quaker kid from Berkeley, California, into relationship that we could have respect for each other, have regard for each other, wish each other all the good things in life, uh, listen to each other, uh, laugh with each other, the simple things and yet the most powerful things in relationship. God was doing that. Now, you mentioned in a previous segment the way that veterans test one another in situations like that, saying kind of racy language or really disturbing stories. Did you find that veterans were testing you, Quaker kid from Berkeley, California? Was that your experience? Yes, certainly. And and, and even the test was just as they came to know me as a civilian, just it was kind of a, you know, it it was immediately, it's really a kind of, it's a defense mechanism, right? It's so many military service members have needed civilians to respond to them in trustworthy, loving ways and have been betrayed in those moments. Um, and so the kind of testing process is really is, is really a necessary uh, kind of thing. Any of us who have survived hardships in our lives, before we get into the real ugly messiness, we really want to know, are, are, are you for real? Uh, are you really going to hang in there with me? And I think, you know, that testing uh, definitely took place. And there will be occasions, there will be relationships and, and encounters that, that aren't able to fully blossom. And it's not any fault of, uh, of the civilian. <laughs> you might do everything right, and a veteran might just not be ready to share their story, right? Um, but what we want to do is, as, as civilians, I want us to be well prepared, to be thoughtful about what we're bringing into the conversation. I think one of the places we can really miss each other is when civilians start thinking in almost kind of charity model kinds of ways. Oh, veterans, oh, maybe they've had a hard time. Maybe they have this PTSD that I read about that one time or I, I saw that that headline about. And after all, I have my life together, so I'll just, you know, be uh, a good sort of stoic, uh, stable person for this person who's having a hard time. That's not a good way to be in relationship with each other. We've got to think about what can we bring to this relationship that will help this relationship. But we got to be thinking about relationship in a two-way street. There's so much that veterans have to offer our church communities, our religious congregations. And it's not about us helping them. It's really about how can we be in a relationship with each other. And so from the bedsides of the VA of visiting during seminary, you felt a calling not just to do that kind of witnessing and showing up, but you actually felt a calling to join the military yourself. Tell us about that. Well, uh, in what that process is for a military chaplain is that that you uh, commission as an officer in your respective branch uh, of the military. You do that either during or or after having completed a, a seminary education, a master of divinity in most cases. And then you have an opportunity to do that. You uh, go through a boot camp experience, although it is by far the most gentle kind of boot camp experience you can have because the chaplains are being trained with the doctors and the lawyers and the nurses and the social workers, uh, maybe what we would think of as being the kind of professional class within the military. And you're all trained up together and they don't spare you any of the shouting or push-ups or anything. I don't, I don't mean that we get spared any of that, but there's also this sense of 
hey, this is going to be really stressful and challenging. And, and also, we really need you. We really need more chaplains. We really need more doctors. There's sort of a gentle hand uh, as, as well as a harsh hand uh, in, the, in the training experience that we have. But what that does is it, it gets us acclimated. It gets us prepared to how to work in these kind of high-stress environments uh, and certainly does some of the cultural indoctrination of having a sense of uh, how do you wear a uniform? What are the kind of values and, and beliefs uh, that really guide what the military is all about? Coming from my background, the military was a, a pretty strange place. So when we go back to that that gospel invitation, how do you love the stranger? How how do you be in relationship with someone who is so foreign to you? There was much about the fo- the military context that felt very, very foreign to me. And yet I also had this sense of very clear call to be there, to be present, to be who I was, but to also be in this kind of chaplain relationship with folks who were serving in the military. Coming from the background that I did was grounding for me personally, but it wasn't necessarily ever the thing that was the most important in doing chaplaincy ministry. What was the most important was, am I committed to being in relationship with you? And and folks who might be in a conversation with a chaplain might be coming from many different religious backgrounds or really no religious identity at all, but that chaplain might be a designated listener. They might be... Uh, somebody who otherwise is filling in for somebody who just needs a big brother, you know, somebody to sort of talk through some things with. Um, the, the chaplain is a sort of catch-all for all of those roles. How do we give a space for people who in the midst of what can be a very, very challenging work environment, uh, uh, if we can know it to be that as well, um, how do we provide the kind of care and support that helps people in the midst of, of those challenging situations? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Zachary Moon. He's Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Chicago Theological Seminary, and we're talking about his recent book, Warriors Between Worlds, Moral Injury and Identities in Crisis. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Common Wheel for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Common Wheel podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwheelmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwheelmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Zachary Moon. He's Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Chicago Theological Seminary. We're talking about his recent book, Warriors Between Worlds, Moral Injury and Identities in Crisis. So your journey from Berkeley, California, where you grew up as a member of the the Religious Society of Friends, to seminary, to the VA hospital, where you felt drawn to talk with veterans and to be a listening ear for veterans, into boot camp and then into military chaplaincy yourself. You've had quite a journey. 
And at the capstone of that, you've begun working on this idea of moral injury along with people like Gabriella Latini and Rita Nakashima Brock. So I guess I want to bring this full circle and say, since you have seen military service from the inside and you have been in close contact with those who have suffered moral injury and perhaps you may have even had some of this affect you yourself if you've been out on the battlefield, how do you see your current scholarship as helping you grow as a person and as a person of faith? Yeah, David, for me, again, one of the things, the more I work on this, and again, the military context has been uh, where the, the emphasis has really been uh, kind of again and again paid uh, to thinking about military service and military trauma. I think it's, it's, it's maybe just that it's easy for us to see that war can be a traumatizing thing. So if we want to study PTSD, we think about the military. Now we're, we're studying moral injury and, and let's go study it there. But it's so clear to me that there is moral trauma, uh, moral traumatic stress, moral injury that's taking place in a number of places in our world. And I would want us to have big open eyes about that, to just imagine that this is something that's generated as a part of a combat experience or a military service experience is much more narrow and focused than we should really be thinking. Really anywhere in the way that I would language it, where a person's uh, moral orienting system, their, their moral identity comes in conflict in working in an environment that in fact doesn't allow them to be true and authentic to their moral self. You're going to see a degree of moral stress uh, there, and, and it, it may be under the surface. There may be times where it becomes really debilitating. So if I may, a person who goes into corporate culture and is asked to act unethically when they've been raised in a kind of ethical moral framework, that could be an example of the same kind of friction point that we're talking about on the battlefield. Am I tracking you? Yes, and in fact, we use different language often when we're talking about what happens in civilian context. I think the easiest term, the maybe the most familiar term, is this heartbreaking term in many cases in terms of how it plays out. We, we call it burnout, right? So think about particular professions that we can all think of where it seems like someone is just is just getting worn out by that environment that they're working on. I can think of a few that are here local uh, to, to where I live and work in Chicago, Illinois. I think um, really first and foremost about our public school teachers, folks who are not necessarily well supported, uh, either compensation or otherwise for the work that they're doing, and yet have a deep sense of calling to that work, moral meaningfulness in being educators uh, to young people and yet are increasingly in an educational system that prioritizes standardized testing, which has actually no kind of clear usefulness in terms of how to help children learn. And teachers who, what, what does it mean to, to, to be a school teacher, to come to school feeling sense of call to educate young people and then having to spend huge number of hours either preparing for a test or then doing a test that in fact isn't a meaningful or, or, or useful learning kind of experience. And so we see teachers, oh, they're, they're not being retained, they're burning out in that kind of job. Are we really thinking about the moral dimensions of what that, that burnout is? I think some of this work that we're doing on moral injury, if again, if we allowed our eyes to kind of open wider, to think more broadly about this, we'd recognize this. The other place you see a lot of burnout is within the hospital context. Folks who, uh, again, have a deep sense of calling to provide care to those in need and yet might be 
uh, otherwise compromised by their institutional context. Oh, well, this person's insurance isn't going to allow uh, for this kind of medical response. And so you can do this, but you can't do that. And again, imagining doing this day after day after day, the way that that could compound. Um, there's a moral dimension to this. And if we really begin to track the way in which this kind of moral traumatic stress is actually a part of a lot of human experiences, I think we will, again, better understand ourselves and also be able to provide better pastoral care and counseling, better chaplaincy work, uh, to be able to recognize uh, how this impacts persons. So at this point, I imagine that some of our listeners are going to be thinking, okay, I'm sold. I understand that this is happening, and it's happening not just in the military, but it's happening in everyday life. What in the world can I do as an everyday person to help someone who may be going through this? Or how can I recognize this in myself? Yeah, this is really where it is so necessary to clarify that this is about a moral trauma and not just a life-threatening trauma, uh, like some of the ones that you uh, spoke of earlier. And if we can recognize it as having this moral dimension, then we understand that there has to be a, a community. There has to be a society that is able to respond uh, to this kind of trauma, right? If, if this is something that was scary that happened to me personally, you know, maybe I just need to go talk to a therapist. Moral injury, you can talk to a therapist about a moral injury, but what it would actually look like to recover well from moral injury can't just be done like that. It can't be medicated. It, it can't just be uh, dealt with in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a therapist. We need to be in relationship with each other because, in fact, part of what has been wrenched apart as a part of this traumatic experience is the sense of moral covenant that, again, is not individual, but is shared collectively uh, for us in our families, for us in our religious communities, and again, sort of think in broader and broader circles about where we have a sense of kind of moral commitment to each other. So if we're thinking, okay, I, I'm beginning to identify this in different places, one of the things that becomes very unhelpful is that if you hear somebody saying, hey, I'm feeling guilty about this thing that I was involved in, or I'm feeling a shame. One of the things that we often do in response is we hear a story like that. We want to say, oh, you're not responsible for that, or you're not as responsible as you, as, as you seem to think you're responsible for that. And we do this in order to alleviate the thing that's generating this suffering, right? Um, if, if only you didn't feel responsible, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't be having this pain. And unfortunately, how that often translates is that we're actually guilting the guilt and shaming the shame. And what we need to be able to do is, is actually to engage constructively with responsibility, right? We don't want to actually alleviate responsibility. We need there to be more responsibility, not less responsibility uh, in our society. So if somebody's saying, I feel responsible for this, rather than trying to take their responsibility away, what would it look like for us to pivot 180 degrees and say, where is that sense of responsibility seeking reparation? Where is it seeking reconciliation? And then how can I be a part of that and a part of supporting you in that? That's really what care and recovery really looks like for this. It's not about, oh, I'm just going to hear your story and I'm just going to tell you, uh, you know, don't worry about that. Let's be worried together about that. Let's, let's come back to the military service question for a moment. If we had a societal engagement about the real moral costs and ramifications of the war fighting that our nation has done virtually every year of its existence in one form or another, we would be a deeply different nation. The fact that we continue to place that moral responsibility 
on a very small number of folks serving in the military. And then most of us as civilians more or less think, well, we don't have any moral responsibility. It's that. That's a kind of moral breaching that's taking place there. And in fact, if we heard each other's stories and rather than saying, mm, I don't know if you're responsible for that. I don't know if you need to be losing as much sleep as you see. If instead we turn that around and we said, I am also responsible for what it is that you're talking about here, even though I wasn't the one to put on the uniform. I was the one who paid taxes on April 15th. I do have some part of this. What would moral reparation look like in the aftermath? What do we need to do uh, as folks who belong together, folks who are a part of a society together? How could we do this work collectively together? And I think at the point of which we make that turn and we start seeing the pro-social energy that a moral injury is not just about somebody suffering, but it's actually about drawing someone toward reparation, toward reconnection and reconciliation. That's the work that we can really lean into. And we've all got to lean into that together. Moral injury is not an individual thing. It's a social thing. And we've got to all take that up together. Well, Dr. Zachary Moon, every time that I get a chance to have a conversation about moral injury, both from back in 2015 when I, t- when I talked to Professor Rita Nakashima-Brock to today, I come away from the conversation re-energized about what our world could be and how we could be in that world for one another. And I just want to thank you for the book that you've written here, Warriors Between Worlds. You've really helped me understand this question in some very fresh and clear ways. And I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing, and thank you for taking time to speak to me and my listeners today. Thank you, Devin. We've been speaking today to Dr. Zachary Moon. He's Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Chicago Theological Seminary. He's the author of the book, Coming Home, Ministry That Matters with Veterans and Military Families. We've been talking about his recent book, Warriors Between Worlds, Moral Injury and Identities in Crisis. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijit. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.